You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. It's an interesting one this week because my guest is Catelyn Moran, the journalist, columnist, author, screenwriter um, and erstwhile television presenter actually, although that was quite a long time ago. She is a, a writer who puts so much of herself on the page. I'm wondering how much is going to be left for this interview. But before we find out the answer to that question, here's Russell Kane to tell you a little bit about his new show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards, all the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Thank you, Russell. Now, um, time to meet Catelyn Moran. Her book, How to Be Famous, follows on from her best-selling, number one bestseller, in fact, How to Build a Girl. And, well, I imagine that we'll be talking an awful lot about feminism, a little bit about journalism, and uh, there's a lot of sex involved. I've been looking forward to interviewing you, but... On the way here, it, it occurred to me that it's going to be quite a strange interview because you put it all out there. Yes. So do you like being interviewed? Yeah, well, I like to chat. Um, it, it saves me from having to do with the housework or childcare. I can just go, Mummy's working, but I'm actually just sitting down and chatting, usually about my vagina. Do you? Although, do, not be, do not be like Alistair Campbell, who interviewed me two weeks ago, and one of the questions he asked was, are you wearing knickers now? And I thought that showed him in a very, very bad light. And I, he struggles with modernity a bit, Alistair. Did you see his own daughter gave him a ticking off on the radio the other day? Yeah, because that was great. still uses the word bird. But to be fair, we all need to be bollocked by our kids. I think that would do us all the laws about our goods. They, you know, they, they are in a properly woke world. Keeps us honest. How do your kids feel about having so much of their mum on public display? And I'm not thinking physical. <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to de- dissociate myself from Alistair Campbell. Well, this, this is the deep and awful thing about like kind of all the books that I write are books to teach teenage girls because I didn't go to school I was taught at home which in actuality just meant I went to the library twice a day and just read every book in there and so I learned nearly everything that I know and particularly about sex and relationships and how to kind of go out into the adult world from books so I was looking for useful books and books that would give me information and most of the books when they talk about sex and relationships and what you're supposed to do when you go out there and leave your heart unguarded they're still by the great white male authors and if you read a description of a woman or having sex with a woman by like Philip Roth or John Updike or Hemingway um It'll, you'll, you'll feel awful as a teenage girl. You just you won't recognise yourself there. There's an amazing line by Raymond Chandler where he goes, she was the kind of dame that would make an archbishop kick in a stained glass window. Yes. And that's a beautiful sentence. Yes. But when I read that as a 14-year-old girl, <laughs> I became incredibly anxious. I was like, I'm a fat girl in leggings from Wolverhampton and I've got to make people kick in a stained glass window and be a dame. I just want to be like some fun time kid who like kind of hangs out and has some nice sex. Like kind of, I, I'm not going to get banged by Chandler. I, already, I, I, I find myself thinking, crikey, I know nothing. <laughs> and I've got a 12-year-old girl at home and a 10-year-old girl at home. So these books are, are potentially going to be of great value to her. Your experiences, though, as you've already touched upon, are far from typical. So yes. that's quite interesting, isn't it, that you address the universal, but from a very specific and quite odd background. Well, that's if you're going to talk about something very specific, like what your vagina tastes like, uh, or, or sort of like the lopsidedness of your breasts, little and large, <laughs> uh, you can't just be doing that to, like, throw that out there. You you do that to kind of to, to use to use that as a starting point for a conversation 
conversation about universal experiences. If there was something that I thought was specific to my experience that was just kind of like just me basically wanking on, yes. I wouldn't put it in. It's always the springboard of like, okay, I've shared something with you. Let's use this as a springboard to talk about what's happening to all of us now. So you have a sense of responsibility oh hugely i'm the oldest of eight kids i'm a mother um and again i know from reading books like <sighs> books will be your best friend books are i mean you look at the format of a book when you open it up like this that's to me that's like opening a door you go into a world you go into someone's mind and all the very best books are a collection of everything that author has had in their life so you eat a whole lifetime of experiences when you eat that when you read that book then you read two books you've eaten two lifetimes three lifetimes four lifetimes i want to make sure the stuff that i'm putting in my books is good and nutritious and useful you know at, 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 you know, 43 i'm only just starting to get my head around being a happy productive not dickish person How, and i've wasted so what? much time kind of just trying to work out ways just trying to work out the world trying to understand and where you fit into yeah it. where i fit into it and like kind of how how society has come to be like this how sort of economics works what good sex is how to be a good friend like kind of everything like a guide to being a human being you know when I, i'd never read the bible as a kid and i sort of when i, I just recently started reading it because um, i'm going to write a book about religion in a couple of years time and i was so hoping it would be a manual to live mm. and it's not there's so little advice in it like kind of there's a huge amount of history it's quite good on how to treat other people isn't it? But you have to flick through a lot of stuff. Yeah, we'll like I'd be like, bang, chapter one. Like right. I'd have okay. like just, just straight in there. Do that. But is that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's in a sense that the titles fit that, don't they? How to build a girl? Yes. It is the workman. Is there an titles. objective answer to these questions? Because I mean, the, the, and also before you answer that, do you always talk this quickly? I'm trying to be slow at the moment. Okay, so good. Just checking. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm wondering what we put in the coffee. But no. Because I have this as well, This, if I just, and I do it on the radio quite a lot, if I just ask the right question, Mm. everything will slot into place. Totally. And I wonder sometimes whether that is going to drive us both mad. Always trying to find the right questions. Yes, well, the failure to find the thing that makes everything, like Tetris, everything just suddenly But then that's But that's the hope of culture, isn't it? That if you read widely enough, if you listen to enough things, if you watch enough things, if you talk to enough people, you know, you don't have to come up with your own questions. You can borrow other people's. That's the beautiful thing about kind of having a wide cultural spread. Some form of... Yeah, yeah, just like contentment and productivity. And and you feel you're approaching that now. Yeah, I reckon I'm pretty frigging awesome right now. Yeah, I've not killed recently. I kind of, I pay all my taxes in full and I I keep a ship-shaped house with plenty of bread in the bread bin. As the world crumbles, Yes. Thrive. Yes. Not thrive. <laughs> Obviously, the anxiety keeps me awake at night. I've got there was a tweet. There was a tweet a couple of days ago where someone was going, "The anger is making me ill, but yeah. to not be angry feels like a dereliction of morality." So, like, you're caught between the two. Like, for your own mental health, yes, it's not actually good for you to read all the news and try and engage with it and try and work out what no. you should do. But on the other hand, if you don't things will get worse. It's like, an abnegation. Yeah, it's basically like that bit in Hairspray where um, where uh, Tracy Turnblad sits under her father's knee and goes, I've just realised a lot of white girls are going to have to get up and go and march and make this world a better place. Wow. Like, you know, and then they go into a musical number. That's very much how I, how I see. <laughs> Including the <laughs> yes, musical number. Yes, always a musical number. High kicks. Well, this is the other thing as well. That, like, one of the things that's sad to me about politics and kind of and culture in general and one of the reasons, that, one of the things that I try to sort of write about in lots of stuff that I do is that like, the idea of being good and worthy and changing the world and revolution shouldn't be seen as this kind of dull, fibrous thing that you chew after you've had your fun Mm. the idea of making the world a better place should seem like fun but your early career wasn't marked by a sense of mission no and that was and that was what i hugely learned and and provides the plot from my book how to build a gun soon to be a major movie (laughs) Um, do we we, know we know who's in it yes Yes, yeah we've just we've announced two of them but there's a lot of other really (laughs) interesting (laughs) cast members so yeah so beanie (laughs) feldstein from ladybird's going to play a young me and alfie allen is going to play the boy that she's in love with um uh but no so when i first started writing it's having that thing of not 
realising that you should use your powers for good instead of evil. So I had some talent. I wanted to be a writer. I started being a music critic. Mm. And the game in those days that I observed... So I'm 16 and I've turned up and it's a room full of adult men and they're all much older than me. Yes. And the game seems to be, not with all of them, but with a lot of them, is you've got to be as horrible as possible to certain bands. It's basically bullying. There are certain bands that we kind of we thought were bad and we had to... And, you know, it was explained as a moral mission. They're the shit bands, so we need to crush them and clear them out of the way in order to leave space for the great bands. Okay. So that was the... So, so I was like, okay, I'll do that. But being 16 with no breaks, I just took it further than anybody else. And it culminated in writing a review of Ned's Atomic Dustbin's third album, uh, where I started it imagining that I was the priest standing at the graveside of the lead singer John and throwing the earth onto his coffin and saying what a useless and worthless life he had had. And it was good that he was dead now and there would be no more music. And I published it and I went into the office the next day and all the boys that I thought I would impress by writing this, we got like kind of like... Whoa. And the man who is now my husband came up to me and went, that was a bit off. And it was a bit like the bit where Mr. Darcy just comes up to Elizabeth Bennett and just sort of goes, badly done, sir, badly done. So I was like, right, okay, now I get it. So then I had to spend the next five years writing apology letters to every single band that I'd insulted and trying to be a good person. Because the point of being a critic is, really, you're either trying to explain how something's happened or you should be pointing at something brilliant. Yes. You don't need to destroy the bad things. But you do need to point out the stuff that's rubbish. You have to discourage people from... You know what? I, 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 do you not I, my same thing with sort of like generally with politics and all these things is rather than destroying something that already exists... This is with my feminism as well. I don't want to destroy any male-only institution. Uh, I just want us to go away and make female alternatives as well. Keep yes. all of that. Whatever you've made the patriarchy, absolutely fine. Carry on with it. It's going to exhaust me to try and destroy this or to try and push my way into your world. I would rather go over here and find some clear space and build it from the ground up. Because trying to work in a male world, something like Have I Got News For You, which they keep asking me to go on. You should. No. Well, because it, it was built for men. It's like a urinal. Like kind of like men. Oh, it's men. one of the best things I've ever done and now you're spoiling it for me. It, because it would work for it you and I enjoy watching it, but it would not work for a woman. Like kind of like generally it doesn't. All the women I know have all just said no or they've done it and come out and gone, I hated doing that. Because it's a urinal. It's built for men. I could go in and try and use it, but I will end up with piss all over my shoes and I'll look very <laughs> inelegant when I'm doing it. So I'd just, rather just talk, do talk something Talk me through different. that because I, 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 as I mentioned, as the father of two daughters and and um I'm, I'm often shocked to discover how unfeminist i am mm-hmm. I, I thought i was a feminist yeah yeah oh me too but, it's, but, it's a lifelong journey but when when you say that it was built for men mm. that's the kind of thing i don't notice so what do, what do you mean it's a, well first of all the fact that it's in panels and that there are winners and losers and it's combative and it's based around some kind of sort of sort of oxbridge sort of union debating system whereby you can win and lose something yes and also the amount of times that i've seen them and i think they're very funny but the amount of times that i've seen uh, sort of various male panelists on there you'll see, whenever they rarely get a woman on uh, a woman will start a joke like you yes. kind of like you know you're doing gags you start you throw an idea let me just stop you there that's right that's what you're about please explain it to me man's playing to me now what happens next um, so they'll throw it there clearly going okay this is where I'm going to run with this and then you'll see a man jump on it and gallop it off into the horizon and it's like that's not the spirit dude that's yeah. not even that's not even the patriarchy that's just bad comedy yes. like, those are not the and rules of manners. improv that's not the rules of improv you don't do that but there's this kind of like well this is my space I sprayed it with my musky man smell uh, you just need to do female comedy is different and this whole thing that women aren't as funny as men it's just like no we're in the wrong place if you go into a pub and there's a group of men over here all telling their funny stories and laughing and women over here telling their funny stories and laughing the men will be laughing at this <laughs> nice one Simon and I respect your trousers the women will be literally drumming their feet on the floor going no I'm going to pee I'm going to pee stop yeah. stop now stop now 
now, stop now, stop now, because we've got more to laugh about. You know, our lives are more horrific. We will make the darker jokes. We will tell those terrible truths, but we're only going to do it in a place that works for us. And if you could do that everywhere, it wouldn't be as funny. If, if Is that right? Because you have to kind of recognise those moments of I don't know, dark connection. humor continues to be still quite funny, like when Bill Hicks was playing at arenas talking about really dark stuff. Sure, but and I don't mean dark. I mean, the, 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 because you are excluded from the space that you've just described. In fact, when you discover your own space and start sharing stories and then everyone recognises yes. the, the shared experience, that, that has a special feel to it that it wouldn't have if you were in the main space. Uh, well, it would depend what the reception was like there. I okay. know when I do gigs and I'm in front of 2,000 people and it's yeah. usually women, that stuff goes down very, very well. Yes. So you can do that in a mainstream area. But in, I wouldn't, in a room full of women. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to go and do it because the men aren't going to get it because they're not going to laugh at it. So Are they not? Just kind of like, I don't, not in the way that women will. Not no. in that kind of, <gasps> you said it. Yes. Like, I yes. didn't even know yes, you yes, were allowed yes, to yes, say yes. that. And that that is the patriarchy. That is... A sense of, 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 of culture, society having taught women to know their place. Well, it's also and then like, you come out and say no. Well, I guess it's also... I mean, it's, it's not even so much being oppressed. It's like you wouldn't even know... The, like, for instance, in the last um, stand-up tour that I did, there was a bit about how um, if you are a woman and you go and have a bath yes. and then you get out the bath and then about five minutes later suddenly some water will come out that just smells of like kind of like of whatever bath you were using yes. and i was like kind of like and the first time i made that joke i did not know how that would go down and there was a kind of <gasps> and then this huge roar through the room of just like oh my god you've said that like kind of like that's happened to me too it's never even occurred to me that's a thing like because kind of, women aren't supposed to talk about things yeah and you like don't that. even you don't even you don't even realize you're not thinking or talking about it no. similarly like kind of in the book i write very very explicitly about sex you do. and um for instance if you're to describe sex physically from a woman's point of view is very difficult because we don't have the vocabulary for instance if you get wet yes. the substance that makes you wet yes there's no word for that no we haven't we don't even talk about we haven't even come up with that word it was a necessary part of the mechanics of sex we don't even have a word for that so this is all unexplored territory which is why i love it like kind of like once you get over the fear of talking about taboo subjects you feel like a footballer kind of like running towards the goal with like is no one doing this literally no <laughs> one's talking about this shit it's all mine <laughs> and that, that oh, you haven't answered my question about uh, the sense of mission began it didn't begin oh, with the yes. ned's atomic dustbin review no 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 so that was when i realized i was a <laughs> massive bell end um no the sense of mission by started, the end of this we're going to have a word for, for for come up with it yeah yes slippery slip but that's the name of the uh, of the slide in the magic faraway tree so maybe that would be wrong any blighting could be co-opted for, for yes. yes oh sexy sexy moon face <laughs> the best character I would have ever banged moon face well so i never hard. thought of it like that i was also in love with him but really yeah, absolutely well he was really dapper wasn't he, he but was also quite he was so kind as well and he was, he was a little bit kind of nervous of yes uh, other people and, and clearly in love with silky as massively well massively in love with silky who was femininity embodied for me for my prepubescent I know, sensibilities totally. and he had to defend it from those bad old squirrels massive, anyway massive soft spot for the saucepan man as well but anyway <gasps> let's let, 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 let's begin at the beginning then so you, as you mentioned one of eight the oldest of eight yes and an some unco- would say the best i mean an, we're, still, we're still assessing that <laughs> an but. unconventional upbringing do you know when you're being homeschooled and when your mum's a hippie and um there's not a lot of money around do, do you know that that you're not ordinary 
Oh, yeah. No, well, because we went to school until we all stopped going to school in 1986. At the same time you all stopped Yeah, we all stopped. School. So the, 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 the point where we all came out was 1986. So I just started at the local grammar school, Wolverhampton Girls High, and I'd been very badly bullied there. And our dad what, had always what been What were you saying, bullied about? Oh, there was just a girl who didn't like me. One girl. Yeah, I was, I was you know, I, I was very overweight and I was a hippie with long hair and just quite sort of moony and kind of like, hey, the world could be amazing, man. Yes. And um, they weren't down in with that. So she would just open uh, soft drinks cans in my face. And after about the third time she did that, I was like, mm, don't think I'm going to do too well here. Mm. So when our parents asked us if we all wanted to come out of school, we uh, we all just said, yes, that would be fantastic. So some of them never went. And I went up until uh, I did uh, two weeks in a grammar school and then left. And, and the concept, which you usually ask when people are homeschooled, of loneliness oh. is both present and not present because your siblings are there. And yes. you're never you're never actually alone, but you can be lonely. But what we were so I mean, it's such a tiny house, a three bedroom council house. We had one sleeping under the stairs. We had to requisition the dining room and put two in there. Um, so there was very little sense of individuation. We were just one mass of right. like our dad would come in the front room and we'd all be sitting there. We'd go, oh, all the blue eyes and close the door again. Like we all we've all got round faces, uh, blue eyes. We all talk very fast. We all eat very fast. Those are the two marks of being in a big family. You have to talk really quick because otherwise you're able to get your point in and you have to eat very fast because if you leave it for more than 10 seconds, a fork will sail across the table and go, you don't want that sausage then. Bang. That's like true. Boarding children. school as well at the other end of the socioeconomic Gobblers. scale. Yeah, you, you go or even eat like that. Okay, just still catch myself <laughs> eating custard. <laughs> <laughs> it's my custard. It's still my custard. This is true. James so, is. Cu- well, let me give you a, this is a tip that you should have had tip. then. You spit on your food before you start. Yeah. They bring it down, you go, have a go on that then. No one will touch it after that. Fair enough, mm. actually. The, um, the, the, the homeschooling from what you've written was sporadic or, or slapdash. Oh, I would say, I would or, say or, new actually, What's the posh word? Uh, autodidactic. Yes, yes, yeah. Child-led is the excuse that you would use if you were writing it up in a thesis afterwards. Um, but, I mean, the thing is, they had, you know, they were quite correct. You go through this, when, you, when you're homeschooled, you go through a process called de-schooling. Hmm. So usually for, like, sort of up to the first year, you won't want to do anything at all because you've been so used to being told to learn things that you rebel against that. So for the first year, you do absolutely nothing. And then gradually, your sense of boredom and self-interest and, you know, inspiration kicks in. And you're like, oh, I want to learn about something. Like, kind of, you know, oh, yes. oh this interests me. Yeah, is that, that's the word I was looking for. Your curiosity kicks in. And the thing about kids is that, like, if they are interested in something, you, you will never need to tell them to go off and do their homework or do some work because they will sit up till three o'clock in the morning doing it. Like, I don't know, reading under the, under the, true, the covers with a torch. Like, kind of. So that's the great thing about homeschooling. You, you become absolutely self-motivated and self-regulating in that respect. Um, I think in terms of education... Uh, as long as you've got access to a good library and a fairly sort of peaceful environment in which to sort of absorb all that stuff, I think it's better than any other system you can have. In terms of your social your own, development... you didn't do it for your own children? No, because what? in terms of social development, Sorry. it's absolutely devastating. I mean, I, I, you know, sort of me and all my family have had to learn many techniques of getting very drunk in order to be able to go out and talk to people, uh, which I mean, we spent the, a long the, time the, sorting see, out. The, the, I'll tell you something I, I wasn't sure I was going to. Is I, I, when I was at the London School of Economics in my first year and you were working at the Modern Review already. Oh, right, were, yeah. And I saw you at a party and I tried to talk to you. Huh? And I thought you were one of the most confident people I'd ever met. And I, I ran out of words and I just stood there for about really? 10 seconds and then walked away. Modern listeners who are not familiar with this period of British cultural yes. history will find what I'm about to say utterly unbelievable, but I thought Toby Young was really cool. <laughs> I remember that Everybody too. Everybody did. But there was a time, wasn't yes. there, when he was acceptable? And, and, and yeah. you, you were just this 
this galleon riding through the high seas of media, writing columns here and dropping novels there, or, or well, not novels, but dropping quite big work. You wrote a novel before, yeah, that I wrote when I was thirteen, yeah, yeah. And and I, I, it, I, I kind of then knowing your work subsequently and seeing the vulnerability that you display and having read some of the autobiographical stuff and seeing the TV show, obviously you were paddling away like that below the surface. But but I don't know if I've ever met anyone who. That dichotomy is so stark because you were winning every you were winning so winning 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 and I, I was at university having been to public school looking at this homeschooled kid from Wolverhampton in a big hat fobs uh, yeah and my mum and dad had had got me killed themselves to send me to public school and I I, I just I wasn't getting arrested I was measuring inside legs at weekends I couldn't get an article commissioned anywhere and I thought you were the boss well at least you've got a transferable skill now the media's dying so that's, <laughs> need, I, I would say it's a long game it's a long game you can you remember what you came and tried to talk to me about um. It was something you'd written. Bloody hell. Yeah. I would have been so up for that conversation. Well, that, what well You fancy my mate Asif at the time. Do you remember Asif? You do? Yes. Yeah, and I think you <laughs> may have been more interested in... Yeah, now I remember Asif. Yes. Yeah, I got sent a letter from the people at the Modern Review about my conduct with Asif uh, um, at the Garretshow Club, I think possibly later that day. So, yeah. Yeah, so, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I wasn't going to drop that, but yeah, we're, yeah. Going, we're going on so yeah. well. Well, you know, that, I've, I've lived a life, let's put it that way. That, yeah. that, that was the first time I got banned from the Garretshow. Was it really? Mm. I, I don't know that whole story. I haven't seen him for a while. Oh, I'll ring him tonight. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 the point I was making, though, was that you, you, how the hell did you come to London and conquer it when you were a frightened, bullied, weird kid from Wolverhampton? Because I had watched a great many musicals and they Are tell you me what to do. So you just yeah. literally, that was what put the fuel in your tank. Just be Judy Garland. In every film, I wrote a column about this. I've written a column about everything because that's how I pay the rent. If I've thought it, I've written it. <laughs> but if you look at the list of the 100 greatest movies ever made, they're usually written by, directed by and starring men. And it's all about killing people usually. And yeah. they the mafia or the war, whatever. And I, I can't learn anything from that. And as a consequence, I don't watch them. If you look at the list of the 100 greatest mu- uh, musicals ever made, they're either... They're either written by or directed by or certainly star women and they're always about weird usually working class girls who uh, at the beginning don't fit in don't know what they're going to do in the world and just by showing pep and skill and pluck and being funny and having extraordinary talent in their case dancing in my case writing they just conquer the world and they just you just you just walk around pretending that you're Judy Garland or Anne Miller in God, Undertale you're right. it's, it's, I'm thinking La La Land yeah it's, yeah it's fake it till you make it like kind of like you, you know because the other thing is as well that you can't it's it's incredibly tedious to other people for you to be shy, like kind of like you're you're putting your problem on yeah, but someone else. It's so else. easy to say that. I mean, you you say you were forty three before you started feeling content about your role in the world. You, I mean, you literally would just watch. Eliza Doolittle and think... Yeah, no, I, I thought she was a sap and I always hate you, uh, Audrey Hepburn. She used to weigh herself every day and if she put on an ounce, she wouldn't eat for a day. Not I was like, she's no, not, not my girl. Well. She's but, better, you know, she's better in Breakfast Taylor. at Tiffany's. Just imagine right, that yeah. you're Elizabeth Taylor. What would Elizabeth Taylor do in this room right now? And suddenly you have a character, like, kind of... Do you think you could have developed that if you had been in school, if you had been in a more oh, no. socialised... Well, no, because they see you just sitting there on a chair, so yeah. you can't... The thing is, I mean, one of the reasons why I married my husband, one of the many reasons, is although... It seems like it was kind of working that I looked confident when you saw me at that party. All I could do was perform, like come into a room and be like, here's my big quip and kind of like, and this is going to be like backwards and forwards and bancy and stuff. And this is going to be like a classic scene. And he took me to one side and just went, you know, you don't have to be legendary. Why don't you just be nice? When did you realise 
that you had an extra to use your own words that you had an extraordinary yeah talent. I kind of regret that if we could just rewind and just go so, workable right, I, will, I will say it okay, thank when you. did you realise that you did have and how did you realise because uh, you're not I, handing your essays in with 30 other kids and being told that that's the best she's seen all year are you no uh, I was I, I would write a diary I mean when, when I was still at school I would write you know you were asked to write I don't know uh, a page in uh, in the persona of someone who was living through the great plague yes. and just sort of like basically go oh it's bad I don't like bubos oh I'm dead and I, <laughs> <laughs> and that's TLDR that is the problem with that disease um, but I would just go away and write 22 pages right. and a really hysterical over the top kind of thing there was a love affair I was trying to give blood transfusions like kind of it was like kind of and they would respond with a kind of well that's Ooh. too much <laughs> I really didn't need to do that. Thank you. You've delighted us enough. Um, so my diary was an outlet for this. I was writing books really early on because the kind of books that I was reading as well. Because this is another reason why it's so important to be able to choose what you want to read, I think, mm-hmm. as a kid, particularly with the way the educational system has changed. I despair at the stuff my kids are being made to read because they hate it. It's got nothing to do with what they, they're interested in. And they're just mm-hmm. like, all oh, books must be shit then. Mm-hmm. I went out and found the books that I love and the stuff that I was reading. I was kind of like, well, I could write like this. You did think Maybe you remember. Maybe not as good as this. But still, but at like, a young I, age, you were thinking, I, I'm up to I this. I can see the way into it because if yeah. you start off with like Shakespeare, you would never think you could write like that. But no. if you're reading like popular fiction, if you're reading like Jilly Cooper and Spike Milligan's War Memoirs and Pacoon and Douglas Adams and Adrian Mole, you're like, oh, okay, I can see how I can do that. And I, the writing that I try and do isn't, I try not to make it all fancy and kind of, <laughs> you could never get near. I try and leave like a ladder down on it so you could see how you could write like that too. Like kind of like, you know, this is something you could do as well. And one of the things I want to encourage people to do, even if it's not their career, is to write because that's the starting of the ordering of your mind it always helps put it down write a diary you know being able to go back and see the mistakes that you've made being able to write to your future self is an amazing thing imagining yourself in five years time and talking to it going okay well how did you get there i'm stuck here how have you got there to this imagined future okay and you can start imagining talking to yourself in the future and giving advice which is basically what all my books are they're me now sending advice to myself as a child and going this is you know when a man says this he's a bad man if you walk into this man's house and he has the if he has a betty blue poster and you know and the complete works and Nietzsche on his on his shelves run 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 this is a bad man giving advice you know when you're having sex like kind of like these are the things you would have seen and these are the things you'll be told to do you don't need to do them why don't you think about what you want to do talk say things you know it's the female sexual machinery is far harder than men's and i've never understood why there's this absolute trope in in sex that men teach women what to do it's always an older man kind of like you know unlocks a woman's sexual potential How's he going to do that? Every single woman's different. It makes far more sense if women are explaining to men what they need and unlocking men's sexual potential because, you know, your sexual potential is very simple to run. It's a very easy to use machine. I'm kind of like, whereas this, the fucking manual's like this. It's insane. Page 56. Jesus Christ, how does this work? Whereas the fellas are ba-ding, ba-ding, ba-ding. Thank you. Exactly, literally. Um, There are men having sex with bicycles. Like, kind of like, it's, it's, you know, it's an easy mechanism. This is really complicated. Even when it's yours, it takes a while to learn how to use That's it. That's shame, isn't it? Historically and culturally, historic, I mean, religiously, it's the idea that you should be ashamed of. I mean, sex is not for women. It's, and I understand that because in a time before contraception, yes. how are you going to stop people, you know, getting diseases and getting pregnant? You All just go, just don't have sex. Yes. Like, it's a very simple, brutal thing, but I can see why that existed. But that's why if you invented, if sex was invented now, all the, uh, in every single idea we have about it, if you started from scratch inventing fucking now, it would be completely different. And women would be running the... I, mean, I think we would run the show. Yeah. I mean, 
the, I mean, you know, if you read sort of like accounts of like prehistory and stuff, there's sort of like the suggestion is that that is what happened. It was a goddess culture. Everybody was screwing everybody else. We didn't know that it was men that got women pregnant. And so it was presumed that women got spontaneously pregnant. And that was the sort of goddess cultures then, as far as we can understand. And then there was a horrible moment where the patriarchy went, hang on, yeah. it is my seed. Uh, and that was the beginning of the patriarchy. There's an amazing documentary series by Dr. Amanda Foreman called The Descender Woman, uh, which is the story of how the patriarchy was built. And it never even occurred to me that it had, I always thought it was always like this. And she just goes through history. She finds the first rules that are written against women. There's one from Sumeria from about 6,000 years ago that just goes, uh, if a woman speaks out against a man in public, you can dash her teeth out with a brick. And she goes, this is the first anti-female rule. So we have to presume before this time, women could speak out in public against men. And she goes through and shows the, the, the construction of the patriarchy. It's a relatively recent invention. And it's anybody, I think it's still available on iPlayer. I, every woman I know who's watched it has had full body tingles and then insane rage and pinging enlightenment and like shit wow shit this was invented as with nearly everything in this world that is wrong it's not natural so it's just you know it doesn't come out of the fucking ground someone invented this shit so it can be uninvented it's almost as if jordan peterson's theory of lobsters is complete bollocks don't even stop me on no i won't i don't enforce monogamy enforce monogamy i've let's, just been let's... writing about this i don't know if i want to continue the conversation <laughs> because my brain is fried enforce monogamy is basically insisting that I, i'm going to go out and drive my van into a crowd of people in toronto if you don't have se- yes. you have to have sex the state, yeah. society needs to give me a wife or else I'll get correctly. such a massive backup in my balls that yes. I will kill. And yes. that's on you. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, I have understood it correctly. Yeah. Thank God for that. I yeah. thought he was going to sue me. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> so we've, moved, we've moved. You are almost impossible to interview. You must have been told Sorry. that you know this, though. Yeah. You are, you are, that'd be great. I mean, it, it, and what's but it's great all about, content. We're making we're fantastic content. content. providers back to... Um, the, the, but no, I want you to ask me questions. Sorry, I will shut no, up. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, it's a criticism. It's lovely. No, but you are my favourite broadcast. Oh, you sure, are the voice of sense. Oh, you sure, are the one we all went to run for. We could have been friends for so. years. We could have made friends in 1991 if you if you if you hadn't been too. You cool. have been so fucking shy in public too school. Cool Sky was so public. So anyway, <laughs> um, so to tie the to sort of main strands of the conversation so far together you sex mm. the book there's yeah. a lot of sex in the book yes and there's a lot of chaos yes in fact there's quite a lot of chaotic sex yes and there's a lot of nasty people and yes. there's people who t- and, and it, it, it it mean to me it reeks of autobiography and and some of the names mentioned in it are real names yes so you've had to walk a bit of a tie right the, the particularly unpleasant character people will speculate about who yes that might. the rock and roll comedian yeah. the rock and roll comedian who yes. could that possibly be but it was the, funny uh, the yeah. week we published we published an extract in the guardian last week and my dm box on twitter just immediately filled up with everyone from the comedy world going and were they all right yeah yeah was it cathartic for you then to write this were you still hurting a bit oh god no um and first of all all the experiences in there are not my own. Like, so when Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote Little House on the Prairie, yeah. she was a pioneer girl. She went out there. But so many of the experiences that are in those books are things that happened to other pioneer girls or friends that yes, she knew. You kind yes, of collate it. Yes. So with James Herriot. So you sort of take a seed, you take a theme, you take an instance, and then you kind of, the great thing about writing fiction is like, and wouldn't it have been funny if this had happened? And mm. it wouldn't it have been funny if that had happened? So it's a, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a snowballed sort of, uh, telling of that time. But the main themes are correct. Like, kind of like, there is no manual to tell you what to do when you are a young woman and you go out and you're hanging around older men. And they say these things. They're even saying things that in films the hero would say. And you'd be like, well, that's the great guy for me. And mm. it's only when you go back and rewatch those films that you're like, oh, the guy who wrote the film was fucking evil as well. Like, Jesus Christ, this is all bad information. That's why I love Love Island at the moment. I'm sitting there with my teenage daughters and you're watching these guys saying this stuff. And you're just going, if a man ever says the expression on Adam's face at the moment when no, Adam was bullshit. Are you watching? No, okay, okay. Okay. Adam's a bad man. Adam's okay. hit on four people in there in two weeks. And as soon as a new girl comes in, he dumps them. 
And Rosie uh, had plighted her troth by giving him a hand job under the duvet last Monday. So they were like steady. This was yeah. marriage. New girl came in, he completely dumped her. He then gaslighted her so furiously about this and went, I basically have dumped you because you've been acting arsy, which he hadn't at all. And the look on his face was this smirk that so many men do, just this kind of like, yeah. Yeah, and I just said to the girls, if you ever see a man doing this face, just ne- walk away and never see him again. Burn his number out of your phone. Like any man who does that facial expression is a badster. It's so useful, Love Island, because they won't read my books. No. I write all these books for teenage girls, and the only teenage girls who will not read them are my daughters. Why is that? Do you think? Because no one wants to read about their mum after no, okay. And it is like, mum. Yeah, it is just mum. Exactly, yeah. It doesn't matter how, no. how many copies you've sold or it's how many billboards you're on. You're just yeah. you are mum, of course. Which is how it should be. No, absolutely, and I, and I like that. You know, kind of yeah. like you know, they're, they're, they're thunderously unimpressed. At one point, I had 28 awards all on top of the piano and um, I came back one day (laughs) and uh, I just came back one day and they were just all in a box and my daughter was like it's just ruining the tone of the piano I was like you've only got a piano because I won those awards where I come from you didn't have a piano you just had to hit a piece of wood with your fingers and sing the notes what what were your mum and dad like then when you you kind of like Dick Whittington, weren't you, in a way? The Dick Whittington of all I'm very like Dick yeah I see a lot of Dick in my story yeah you just packed up your Kit bag and set off for London. Yeah, well, they were. I mean, it, it was a very, very crowded house, like kind of like space so <laughs> premium. So, like, kind of like I'll it was, have that. I'll have that. It I was, want it, a cup. It, it was very much like <laughs> bye, and this kind of release of pressure, like some more people could like find space on the sofa or stand up. So, um, no, my birthday present um, was my dad driving me down to London on my birthday. He paid for the petrol. Uh, usually, <laughs> he would charge me for petrol and then corkage on top. But uh, but this time it was free, and he drove me down to London on my birthday, and that was when I moved out of the house. He was he was the youngest of like nine, I think. They were like shooting each other. In the head with air rifles and yeah. kind of like it was a time before welfare he ran away from home at 15 to fake his passport was in a band going around germany and stuff so as far as he was concerned i had a much more stable upbringing and i was you know he waited until i was 18 to let me leave home yeah uh, and he made sure that i was moving into a house he got me a german shepherd that was going to protect me like you know job done i'm just, just fair enough you what people may not realize is you were already a, a successful journalist by the time you left home at 18 yes you, you you tell the story of Keith Orthouse in the book when he you started was it the Observer for him was it no he started off at a local paper and then he no I know that but oh, when right. he started dropping yeah he, he sent the local paper his columns yes. and said this is what I would write if I worked for you and after yeah. about five days they hired him that's how he got the job yeah and that was exactly what I did I just bombarded people and it wasn't just newspapers I was writing off letters to like Comic Relief and Spitting Image and Clive Anderson talks back kind of submitting jokes and stuff I was just like that's what I want to be doing I want to be but you invite so much rejection when you do that. But there's, I haven't got anything else to do. Like, right. kind of like, I have literally not. This is one of the great things about being a councillor state scratcher. Like, you've got nothing to lose. Like, uh, kind of, you know, yeah. I've got no face to lose. I haven't even got any friends who are going to laugh at me if I get rejected. I'm kind of like, it's great. I can just absorb all the shame myself and use it as fuel to succeed. But you didn't just get rejected. You got accepted. Yeah, no. So the first book that I wrote, so with that. This is the Chronicles of Narmo. Yes. Uh, that was, we were on benefits, um, but my parents didn't want anyone to know that we were on benefits because they were just always worried that DSS were going to come around and assess that my dad was disabled. No, but he would have to go mend his car even though he was disabled because mm. otherwise the car wouldn't work. So the logic was if someone saw him mending a car then knew he was on benefits, they'd shop him and get our benefits taken away. So it was the, you know, one of the big secrets that we had. Don't talk to anybody about the we're on benefits. And I made friends with an old woman down the road who had kittens and also had biscuits. And after three sessions with her kittens and her biscuits, I just kind of blurted out that we were on benefits. Then I saw she had a copy of the Daily Mail on her table. Mm. So that meant that she loved Thatcher, which meant that we were in danger. And I was so terrified walking back. I was 13. Like, it was the first ever panic attack I had 
have like full mm. body, like mm. we're going to die. Um, so I made a pact with God, still believed in God at that point. I was like, God, I promise, because I recently discovered masturbation, I promise <laughs> I will not masturbate for the rest of my life if you make sure that we keep our benefits. And she doesn't tell the DSS. Unfortunately, it was a very hot summer. I was wearing a really nice summer sundress and I kind of seduced myself about three days later and completely broke my non-wanking pact with God. Uh, so then I was like, okay, I'm going to have to find some other way out of this predicament. Um, and I was like, and Joe March in Little Women, when they yeah. need money, writes a book. So I was just like, I'll write a book then. And that was, I, that was why I wrote a book. Because <laughs> I couldn't stop wanking. <laughs> You know, whatever takes your mind off. I know, right? And that from that to at fifteen, the Observer's Young Reporter of the Year, and at sixteen, Melody Maker. Yes. Well, it was just constantly like kind of. I mean, the problem was when I wrote a book. This is why I was in awe of you. I I, because you you just got everything got commissioned. I got one uh, briefly. Got commissioned by Mary Claire because my mum's friend in Doncaster was writing to a bloke on death row in America who escaped. And, and I phoned out Mary Claire and offered them the story. <laughs> and then, then I phoned my mum's friend and she said, I don't want to write anything from that. So I had to phone them out and say, oh, I'm sorry. I but you, <laughs> sorry, I you, you, you were just, a, you were just boom, boom, better. But, did, I, yeah, but, you, you, kind of, but you, you still don't seem to have any concept of how remarkable that was. Well, you were kind of screwed because you were busy at school. Like, I just had an enormous amount of time on my hands and I was desperate for money. Like, yeah. kind of, you know, bitch got to make rent. And so you transfer like, your skill into, into money and your skill was right. And the, the problem was that when I wrote the book, I, did, I had no idea. I thought maybe you'd get a million pounds for writing. Yeah. First of all, I thought you could write. You a book wanted in to a be day. rich from quite an early age. Well, I, I wanted to not be poor. Yes. There's a difference. Yes, yes, um, yes. But, choices and freedom. Yes, exactly. Um, I thought because I could read. I'm very, very, very fast reader. So I thought because I could read a book in a day that you must be able to write one in a day. Uh, came to the end of the first day of writing the book, realised that was not the case. Um, but anyway, it took me a year to write the book. I wrote it, and then the other uh, disbelief, misbelief that I had at the time was that you would get a million pounds for yeah. writing a book. And when it turned out, when I finally written the thing that I only got one thousand eight hundred pounds, I realised that probably wasn't enough to support my entire family for the rest of our lives so when the book came out i was interviewed by valerie grove from the sunday from the yeah. sunday times and uh, after we finished the interview i was like look val woman to woman how do you make dollar from writing like this book thing's not working for me and she was like you become a journalist so i went okay i'll become a journalist old, good old days. yeah so then yeah. i started entering competitions and sort of and, and writing off to manage anywhere that you could because in the old days if you were if you were working class there were so many places you'd go and work with no qualifications no experience at all you just said if you have if you could write something decent and you sent it to them they'd just ring you up and go yeah do you want to work for us mm. so that was what i did that's yeah. um, almost impossible to believe now it, isn't it, it? yeah i know I, I feel really sorry for anybody who like asks me for advice on being a journalist and my, my first advice on being a journalist is go back to 1993 so it would be easier and quicker and more efficient for you to learn how to build a TARDIS than mm. it would be for you to go on a journalism course now like the, the money's gone We're completely the gone. money's gone it's, it's, it's terrifying actually because you wonder who's going to be left it's going to just be people with trust funds. Well, yeah. It's already heading in that direction. Yeah, and writing or blogs that like aren't copy-checked, that aren't legal, yeah, that yeah, sort of don't yeah. run to length and stuff. So the whole idea of like investigative journalism and being able to hold the power accountable is, uh, you know, we, we're destroying that infrastructure now. When you describe yourself as working class, is, mm. that, is that a solely economic description? Is it just the financial situation? Because your cultural capital was immense. You said that in quite a middle-class way. You said working class. Well, it's I, like I, when posh I, people say the Rolling Stones. The Rolling, it's Rolling Stones. Stones. The Rolling it's like Stones working class. Working. Well, I don't, the right working yes. class. Yeah. Um, well, there is a difference between. I think it's the same as being Jewish. You can be you, you're born Jewish, and then you can continue to be a practicing Jew. And in the same way, you know, you can born working class, and then you can either continue to be a practicing working class person by being poor, um, or, or you can you can earn some money. The thing that I dislike when people say, "Well, you're middle class now," hmm. uh, is that that feels like the middle classes are co-opting me because I've succeeded. Like, kind of like, okay, you had some talent and you had some money, so you're with us now. And right. it's like, no, all my the, the values between the working classes and the middle classes are very. 
be very different. I still don't have like an infrastructure. You know, I've got no investments or savings. I don't have any friends whose holiday homes I can borrow. Mm. I'm still the richest person I know. I still have to pay for my family. Did you not knock about with other hacks and other... Other hacks, all the other hacks I know generally come from scratcher backgrounds as well. So, like, we're, we're all very sort of bonded in that thing of, like, we're, we're, we're the richest one we know. We are the, the ones that solve the problems. Yeah. We are the kind of... We're, we're the ones that got out. And that's a very working-class thing. And the first thing you do if you're working-class is you put everybody that you love on the payroll or you're subsidising them. If you go out for a meal, um, you will pay for everybody there automatically because you remember what it was like to be around that table knowing you didn't have enough money to, like, have the bill split five ways. So what, and you don't want people to feel that anxiety. So you're like, oh, uh, buy it for yeah. everybody. I didn't have a, I didn't have a start. I only drank water. Oh. You, you, don't, you never want and to. And it's be, mortifying. I, 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 well, it's odd, you know. I, I, you should interview me one day because I, I remember. <laughs> I, I accept. When I started off as a gossip columnist, and mm. I'd been to public school, but my dad grew up above a pub in Leeds, so, mm. we, so my background wasn't posh by any stretch of the imagination. And I remember the bill came. And everyone put their card on the table to share. And I was earning. I was still working in the shop and I was doing shifts in the newspaper. And everyone laughed at my card because it was a Halifax card. And they all had things like Coots and Flemings. And I mean, that's super posh. So so I, I envy your ability to know what class you belong to. Because I think an awful lot of people don't anymore. You're not, certainly not upper class. Middle class is almost defined by aspiration and working yes. class has an actual identity to it but but unfortunately so much of it is to do with failure and struggle it is and, now but it wasn't yeah. then was it i well, mean this you is, could, well, this you is look at things. keith waterhouse look at people like uh, well, you know well, all of that era well, that, this is one of the big Billy things that, like my you know my dad was a trade union leader after he finished being a rock and roll star uh, you know he would constantly talk about kind of like you know the struggle the trade union movement the idea, the notion of a progressive working class is a huge thing so yes. friends of mine who run one the best gay club the best club in london Ducky, uh, they call it entertainment for the progressive working classes, and we've lost that sense. The idea that, like, you know, when a Beatles album came out, you know, everyone would sit around and listen to it and talk about mm. what the influences were, and your novel would come out, you would talk about it. And now the whole concept of being working class is just kind of like, well, you're just trash. But if I was lazy now, I'd say, but isn't that because of things like Love Island? Love Island's a completely different thing because what that Sociology. was was the need for the separation from talent from celebrity uh, uh, in the okay. in the, uh, the it's sort of at the, towards the tail end of the nineties with the explosion of the internet and sort of like a plethora of, of gossip magazines and stuff. The only people that they could write about on the red carpet or, or your fat or circle of shame or oh look at those shoes were celebrities and there wasn't enough gossip to go round. So I, I think coincidentally, but with the invention of Big Brother, you created a celebrity class that only did the famous stuff. They would talk about their diets. They would sell their pregnancy stories. They would have to do well. their weddings. Exactly, all that stuff. Yeah. So that's a separate that's a separate celebrity class now because right. there wasn't enough gossip about actually talented famous people God, to go around. Exactly and right. I think that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's democratising celebrity in a way. Except it, and, and people often say, well, you don't have to be talented, but they've completely forgotten that you would be a celebrity just by dint of being the third daughter of the Duke exactly, of Devonshire Debs, back Exactly, in, Deb's Delights and stuff. Or, or, you know, we had It Girls, or like there was those, who were those teenage girls in the early 90s that sort of like would stand on tables and have their pictures in Tomorrow, Sunday Beckwith Times, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I think it takes the pressure off people who've genuinely got, I mean, I'm far, far happier from Kinga from Big Brother to be doing a kind of thing about her gut biome and kind of like, you know, flogging some kind of weight loss thing than someone continually hassling someone really talented, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Chris Martin for, yes. for his 
diet tips. Like kind of that's fine. To divide that out. <laughs> Gwyneth has got that sewn up anyway. Exactly. She? She's got the. We know all about her gut biome. <clears throat> we know more than anyone <laughs> could ever wants to know about. Her. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, Raised by Wolves, which oh. was the the sitcom you wrote with one of your sisters, yes. based on your childhood. That seemed to hurt when that got axed by Ted. Because I know you tried to kick it off again, didn't you? Yes. Raising money, and we were so close. We managed to raise three hundred ten thousand, and we were we were just short. And I still get people every week tweeting, like, "Where is it?" I felt very very sad about that. We were the third highest rating sitcom on Channel Four. What we reasons were you Rose given? What, what, what? They just sort of went. Yeah. Change of air. Yeah, it's that kind of. But it's crazy. Like, kind of, we were ticking so many diversity boxes. Yeah, of <laughs> like, course kind of, you were. You know. Yes. Um, and I still love it, and we still sort of, you know, we still sit down and talk about, you know, what they would doing now we had all the episodes planned we're thinking of making it into a musical at some point because that musical is the greatest of all of all formats so of course yeah i miss it when did you start going to see stuff then because if there's so little money around an awful lot of reading in terms of plays and you bought stuff on video, would you? I mean, what? What, oh, God, what as kids or yeah. now? Um, oh, well, we never saw anything. No, we no, went to the so pantomime. Where did you get once. this passion for musicals from? Oh, uh, VHS cassettes. They would be just yeah. on video. Our uncle had two VHS cassettes wired up to each other, and they were just kind of pirate it, sort of like yeah, outrageous. I know, right? Yeah. So we had very, very scratchy versions, third-hand versions of How the Duck with someone's head sort of in the way at the cinema and stuff. So no, and also in those days as well, like kind of the the daytime schedule. If you were taught at home, the daytime schedule, they'd be showing a movie at two thirty on BBC Two. Yes, you'd just be sitting there going, oh, Fred. A stare, yeah. smashing. Yes. Is, is there anything you don't write about? Is there anything that's off limits? Is there anything that you keep between you? I wouldn't write about anything dreary or sad or upsetting if there wasn't a wider point to be made, if I hadn't worked out a solution to it. So there's no point in just, you know, I'm not interested in writing a misery memoir about bad things that have happened to me unless... I've come up with a solution to the bad things. So anything that I write about that's happened to me is because I, I proffer a solution to it. Uh, and I wouldn't write about my children or no. their lives because that's, you know, aside from any parenting issues, that's their material. Yep. <laughs> that's their books to share. You've, you've got a dynasty. As long as you've I got get, a dynasty to spawn. Exactly, yeah. As long as I get some corkage <laughs> off the back of that, then I'm fine, yeah. Um, the TV presenting you had a crack at with Naked TV oh, yeah. back in the day. Yeah. No? Oh, what, what? was honkingly awful at it. Well, no, I no, don't no. really remember, but but it was. I mean, th- th- you could have written your own check at that point in your. You shouldn't. Well, first of all, no, I didn't have an agent, so I negotiated my own deal, thinking ah. I was like Johnny Big Bollocks and yeah. got very little money for it. And yeah. B, you just shouldn't put a child on TV. I was eighteen. I'd gone from like a year before I was at home, and I literally hadn't spoken to anyone I wasn't related to for five years, and then oh. I was suddenly on TV interviewing Eggy Pop and Björk. Um, and this was because you were such a beautiful music writer. They thought that that would translate effortlessly. And also, into... I was a teenager with a weird background and stuff. And that was Channel 4's thing, like you know, chuck the crazy kid on the on the TV. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it did, did not work for me. I was I was very. This is where I um, assumed this RP middle class accent. There was a girl in the office called Isabel who had this voice, and she seemed very confident. So I just started speaking in her voice. Before this, I was in broad Wolvo, and I've, it's stuck since. This is my nervous twitch kind of. Okay, you're in London voice now. Do you of. go Wolverhampton when you're drunk? Yes. Ah. Yeah. Immediately it slips after like halfway down the bottle of cider. Yeah, and if I or if I get very excited about something or indignant about something. To be fair, that is balls! Um, but yeah, it's so, a unique act. I grew up in Kidderminster. It's a, it's Kitty? A, yeah, it's, a, it's, Kitty? it's quite a corner of Coffee the country. The coffee centre of the world. <laughs> <laughs> the centre of the world. Oh, smashing carpets! <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, it, 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 I didn't know that. I wondered, because the sitcom is, is broad Wolvo. Yes. Um, do your siblings still? That was quite embarrassing, actually, because they go, how do we say this to Wolvo? And I'd have to like basically do an impression of myself when I was 18. Just Without like, culturally appropriating myself, yes. which felt quite wrong. Yes. Um, uh, they are. They have various depending.
depending on what they did in their later years, they have various kind of like I think three of us have got this voice, right? Four of us don't. I can't remember really. It's funny, isn't it? I know. A, and, and it doesn't speak of insincerity. You made a conscious decision. Why did you make a conscious decision to talk proper? Uh, it wasn't so much a conscious decision. It was just like she seemed really confident. The way that the cadence that she would speak in was very kind of like, and this is how it will be, okay. and this is what we need to do. So you thought if I'm going to be on telly, I need to. Yeah, and she, yeah, it was just kind of, it just, it sounded like it was the voice that knew what it was doing. Whereas if you're talking in Wolvo, like kind of, it, yeah. you sound like you're going to ask for your cup of soup. Like, kind of, it didn't really sound like I was in control of stuff. Like, I was basically saying, thank you so much for having me here. But, like, I do know you're going to kick me off in a minute. And to be fair, that is fair enough because Johnny Vaughan is far better than me. But um, you mentioned Adrian Mole earlier. That would have been one of the only things you could read in your own accent, was it? Yeah, it would, it would, I, mean, I not loved quite Adrian Mole. I loved so Adrian Mole. It's such a great and book. And the later books are massively underrated as well. I don't think. Didn't bother with them. Did you, you should have a look at them. The, the, they're funny. The new Labour stuff when Pandora becomes a kind of and that's Blair's, where she an MP, Blair's she? Yeah. babe. It's, yeah. but, but the early stuff was actually because of course written by a woman mm. from the perspective of a man. But oddly, Adrian Mole writing about wanking mm. and that kind of thing possibly did for my generation of boys what you're trying to do for a new generation It was of interesting, women. actually. I was listening to Sue Tazen's Desert Island Discs yesterday. Special woman. And she, pff, absolutely, so hugely. Special. And one of those people where you just go, oh, God, OK, that's a job I can do. Okay. You read Adrian okay. Boyle, you go, I can do that. Did you? But I was listening to her Desert Island Discs, and she was saying, it was interesting, because it was back from when Sue Lawley presented it, and uh, Sue was going, why did you write in a boy? And she went, yeah. oh, I just think, um, I think boys' problems are funnier, aren't they? And I was thinking, God, that's how much things have changed in like the last 30 years, because I think girls' problems, I mean, maybe, maybe it was, no, and I still think girls' problems are funny, because there's so yeah. many more of them. This is like a wibbly, wobbly, yeah. mad bag Why full of blood and Why did she think that then? Do you think she just was slightly conditioned, culturally conditioned? Yeah. It, it takes you your whole life to sort of excavate this stuff with a spoon. Like, I still come across pockets of, like, sort of, like, suppositions about what it is to be a woman and kind of, like, gender roles and stuff now. Like, it will take you your entire life. And, you know, at that point then, you know, feminism was, you know, you know, in full stride. You know, we were marching, we were petitioning, we were getting legislation done, but there wasn't a lot of lol around. No. You know, kind of, there were no kind of feminist uh, and, and, and that's it, because, I mean, you think of a huge... A, a, a Jermaine Greer and one of the words that springs to mind is humourless. You, mm. you you fight passionately against that, don't you? The, the, I find well, that Jermaine... makes you sound earnest. You're no. the opposite of earnest, but you are passionate about not being earnest. Yes. in the context of feminism. Well, non-exclusionary, like kind yeah. of that. The I mean, I, I I think I think the female youth is full of humour. I think it's an absolutely dazzling, incendiary kind of latter day Greer. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, that's kind of. <laughs> she's, she's done a bit of a Morrissey. You know when she? you play um, <laughs> you know when you play the name game where you pull names out of hats yeah. and you have to mime them. Uh, yeah. when if we anyone put Jermaine Greer in, the uh, the mime for Jermaine Greer, which everybody gets straight away, is tits, no. And that was basically feminism. <laughs> tits, no. Jermaine Greer. Um, but yeah, no, but I mean, the, so that first book's absolutely dazzling, but like kind of, but so much, I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote How to Be a Woman is it was just like there was nothing, you know, that was joyful and easily understood by every, anybody to explain why it was really important for women to be equal to men. And, and so that was like, you, oh, tip, tap, 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 tap. See, the, the thing is, we, we haven't, I haven't used the word ambition at all and nor of you you've mm. described your career trajectory as quite a pragmatic process mm. you wanted to change your circumstances you wanted to transfer your skills into yeah. into money um but and then we've used the word mission because mm. you do write these books in the hope i mean of helping by by addressing the things you wish someone had told you mm. you you put yourself in the position of of telling other people the same things the, the there's a story in the newspapers today about a senior car executive female car executive saying that the use of the word feminism and i think you agree with this has kind of 
it's poisoned the well a bit for women lately because people don't think of you yes when they think feminist they do think of somebody you know like militante out of viz or somebody who and, and how, how do you but you realize how quickly it changes though like kind of like sort of before how to be a woman no one was really writing about feminism that's or right. if they were it was they very academic it yes. was kind of yes. hidden and cloistered yes. and there were lots and then uh when twitter first started everyone forgets we forget how things quickly how quickly things change when twitter first started in the uk it was mainly women on there and it was it was, was left-wing it? funny feminist women who were just know. talking about these things that was where sort of laura bates from everyday sexism i was yeah. on there kind of like sharon hall Morgan, like kind of you know these people have gone on to do all these things and we would be talking about these things and like kind of like asking questions and getting all this feedback but that was how everyday sexism started i was just like yeah. someone said that sexism doesn't exist anymore what would you say and yeah. all these examples started coming through and they still come through now um so it was joyful and brilliant. And then there was uh, the, the summer of 2011 was the year of, of the great end fucking kind of like all the trolls came on. It was the start of 4chan. Is that right? Is that I think right? that's where the, the you know, I, I'm quite tinfoil hat about it. I think that was where the Russian bots started because yeah. there was this massive, brilliant, communal, funny, accessible, aspirational, not in yes. a kind of wanky way, but just like this looks like fun, yes. uprising of feminism. And they went in there and they went for the women first. They kind of they went through Gamergate. They went in and took the women down. And then once they saw that that worked, no one was going to protest about it because it's like free speech yeah. and it's just the internet. Then they went over and sort of rolled over everybody else but they went for the women first because there was such a big upswell at that point and, it's, and it yeah, frightens men. well i mean loads of women i know i mean about half the women i know who were on the internet at that time left i yeah. was like no i will not go because there's no one else like me but you your know. pleasure was massively diluted yeah i mean uh, yeah hugely but uh, alongside sort of like the right-wing trolls and the people there were to, to screw feminism over unfortunately as the left often does it often screws itself over and there was also a massive wave of very sort of angry uptight feminists going no we must use this phraseology or you've done something wrong here it was the start of the problematic wars and so suddenly rather than feminism being something that you could sort of discuss joyfully and make it so critical quoted in kind of rock and roll cultural thing yeah, yeah, yeah. it became a very sort of cloistered academic thing as well you've used this wrong word you've used this wrong phrase and loads of people got scared about talking about feminism again because it was like oh if i use the wrong word i'm going to have a massive pile on i'm mm. too scared which breaks my heart because the whole idea about feminism you can't you can't have this feminism in a special place only used by the special people who know that's what i was words. trying to allude to because like if only five percent of people know how to do feminism properly yeah it's meaningless. the whole point is a hundred percent of the people eventually yeah. feminism's aim is that hundred percent of people everybody in the world believes yeah. in gender yeah. Quality because if it's an idea and a way that you treat people, it doesn't work until everybody believes in it. So the more people you've got involved in it, the more it works. The less people you have involved in it, how all the gates that you put into it screws it over. It kills the movement. And then this is one of the things that still frustrates me. And you see it in so many political movements. You can see it, you know, in so many areas in the left, in so many sort of like civil rights debates and stuff. It's kind of like, you no, know, you, 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 you must stay away from yes, it. Of course. Only purism. a couple of people it's, it's, it's are allowed to talk about purism, this. Isn't it? Yes. It's a kind of says there's only one way to do it my, no, totally. my way or no way or, or you're also, fraudulent you're, and a lot of it is kind of like you know it's self-aggrandizement and it's it also is. a bonding thing like kind of like if you have identified you know sort of like in, in your little clique an enemy that's doing it a bit wrong it bonds these factional kind of movements yeah. together kind of like yeah, okay, we've yeah. terrorized her today she got it wrong he got yes. it wrong and we are closer together and you see that all the way through politics now this this sort of the, the way that we talk on social media there's that steve bannon quote about um, politics being downstream from culture yeah. and the way that we talk on the internet we forget how different we used to talk though i got the um that uh throwback thing on twitter uh that sort of like reminds you of tweets that you made yeah. 10 years ago oh, and yeah. there was a conversation that was going on in 2010 between all my friends all my friends are interested in politics going god boring politics is so boring at the moment isn't it oh, everyone's god. converged on the middle ground like Please kind of like be boring again i know <laughs> but this i truly genuinely believe that the 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 pickle we are in right now let's say pickle and pretend like it's just a fair, it's just a Pick, bit of a hoo-ha but the pickle we're in yes. at the moment politically and socially across the world at the moment is because for the first time we 
had the majority of the world's consciousnesses all gathered together in place on social media. And because the, the internet was invented by hippies, they were like, and there needs to be no gates on it and no rules right. and people could be anonymous. It'd just be great if we were all in one place. And malign forces looked at that and went, great. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> because if you change the way that people talk, you change the way that people feel. You make people scared, make people angry. You know, change the language. Make these words acceptable. Have it so you can go around people calling people cooks and, and snowflakes and libertards and stuff. Like, Ooh, kind of like, make time. that acceptable. To yes. the point where you now have politicians using these words. You do. Well, you know, the columnists, the there are columnists who, like, three or four years ago were very liberal, right-on columnists, you know, in sort of national newspapers and stuff who were very kind of right-on, yes. who, as this sort of tide of country, this high tide of country has gone, their boats have risen up with it, yes. and they're all on my shit list, because at some point, this is all, it's all, you know, swings around roundabouts, the tide will go back down again, yeah. the, the heat will go out of it, and I've got all their names. <laughs> I will never forget that you turned on us, that you yeah. went over there for a bit of dollar and started using those words, and just enjoying being a kind of thought-provoking contrarian. No, it's not a fucking game. It's a game for you, because you come from a middle-class background, and because you're white, and because you're secure. Yes. You know, politics affects the people, the working classes, minorities are the people who are affected by politics. What's the worst that can happen to you if you come from a wealthy middle-class background, yes. politically? The worst that can happen is the 1970s. The bins don't get emptied. Like, you know, there's some strikes happen, but you can still go on holiday. You've still got wine in your basement. The worst that can happen to the working classes when things go wrong politically is your benefits disappear. You don't get the operation in hospital. Your children's school is crumbling. They've got no educational future. You know, you don't have access to the justice system. The fact that legal aid has been cut in this country and no one's still really talking about it. Like, we are kind of unfree at the moment. Mm. If you do not have access to the justice system in this country, if you only have access to justice if you've huge, got money which is huge that's gigantic well, but, but no there's so much shit going on at the moment we're not even talking about that but this, there's this a creeping unfreedom yes. that is happening at the moment where you only have access to freedom and democracy if you are wealthy is it deliberate we're, we're, we're well, I mean, I get, I mean, I, I vary between sort of being quite tinfoil hat and my yeah. father's daughter, he was very kind of, you must prepare for the breakdown of society, like right. kind of it will come in our lifetime. Yes. And thinking a lot of it is just cyclical, like kind of, you know, we went uh, through a period of building post-war, we sort of came up with all these institutions and all these safeguards and kind of, you know, we constructed all these things. And necessarily once you've, st- you know, once you end a period of construction, unless you're telling the stories that remind people to keep these things... Mm. Then at some point someone will come along and go, well, what's all this stuff doing here? And they dismantle it again. And one of the big problems that we've had with things like the European Union, the welfare system and the the justice system, legal aid and stuff, all these things is that we did not realize that once you've built these things you then have a you then have to go on and curate them and that is as big as a job you have to keep telling the story why we made these things why we constructed these things keep the story fresh remind yes. people why we went and did this stuff but we didn't that's the problem with the eu we formed the eu and then no one knew anything about it it was a joke how mysterious it's not true in other countries it's a peculiarly anglo-saxon condition that you which is why it's kicked in in america as well in the words of Joni mitchell you don't know what you've got Got it's gone gone. i know um let's end on a slightly more upbeat note a musical number perhaps (laughs) let's just sing Joni mitchell no (laughs) no um just in terms of your 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 your, what are you going to do next you've got the film is on the way yes are you involved in that heavily? Or? Yes, I am executive That's producer. I've negotiated a chunky back Mate, end. So I'm, I'm compiling the uh, the music uh, soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack right now. with presumably your husband has got a. I know, I've kept him away no, from it. Really, I'm like, no, I can allowed. do this. This is my baby. I know, I can do this. And it's great. We've got uh, my basically my favourite band of the last 20 years are going to write the songs for it. Like, kind of, there's cameos we've got in it are amazing. We can't announce them yet. So that's that's on the way. Yeah. How to be a celebrity. How to will, be famous. How to be famous. How no, to be famous. I'm sorry, how to be famous will emulate 
The success of her. Well, fingers crossed. Yes, looking so looking it like be, it'll be. be another film there. And you've also said you want to write a book about religion in two yes. years. So you yeah. have a map, the form of a plan. Oh, I've got my entire lifetime's work because what I realised a long time ago when there were the years when I didn't know what I should be writing about, and you kind of like you know, and it's it's a white male world, so you're like, oh, I can't write things like yeah. broth. You know, what yeah. do I write about? And I had this big thing where I go, okay, that's all the stuff that exists. You can't write about that stuff. Go over here. Here's all the stuff that's not being written about. Mm. So what I do every day is every you know every twenty minutes it occurs to you. No one's written about that. No one's talked. I've not seen that. I've not heard that. You make a list, and that's my life's work is writing about all the things that have not been written about. So the next couple of books uh, I'm writing the sequel to More Than a Woman, which, uh, How to Be a Woman, which is going to be yes. More Than a Woman. Uh, then I've got a Margaret Atwood meets weird science novel I'll be writing after that. I've got a couple of films. Um, I want to go back through history and find women who amazing women from history whose stories weren't told. Um, and so I'm writing uh, co-writing a film about an amazing woman we found in history who started the French Revolution uh, with John Niven who wrote Kill Your Friends yeah. who's my friend uh, this book about religion I want to find out the origins of the patriarchy so you barely started I want to change the world and I think more people should just say that calmly and without being a wanker just go yeah well I want to you know every, everything that I have enjoyed and benefited from in my life is because someone invented it and they changed the world a little bit that made it my life good so that's your job as a human being you need to find the list of things that need to be done and go you know pick a couple and try and knock them off before you die how to be a famous? How to, how be, to be a famous? How to be a famous? Yeah. How to be famous? How to be famous? Get the branding right. Hold Complete it up. waste of this fucking hour. Oh, Get the branding right. Thank you. All right. Kiss the book. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine Moran. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> I found that really, really interesting, although I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone who speaks quite so quickly. I didn't know whether or not I was going to tell her that story about her crushing my my youthful heart back in about, it would have been about 1991 or two, but, um, but I'm glad I did. Do subscribe to Unfiltered if you've enjoyed this, because there's plenty more where it came from. And, of course, to that end, do leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, feel free to review an individual episode as well, rather than just the whole body of work. And, of course, if you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, then do introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.